as we prepare to read together God's holy word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Lord God, help us now to turn our hearts and our attention to you and to hear what you will speak through the power of your Holy Spirit, for you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. I invite you to open your pew Bibles or your personal Bibles if you have an ESV. We're going to be reading together out of Exodus 21 through 17 as we read together the Ten Commandments. And the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. After 20 plus weeks of going through the Ten Commandments, we have finally come to the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. And now we can all breathe a collective sigh of relief. Right? We have gotten past all of the big commandments. I remember being at a conference as a teenager, and the conference speaker asked if anyone could recite some of the Ten Commandments. And this kid's hand immediately shot up, and the speaker brought the mic over to him and asked him which commandments he knew. And with this deep southern drawl, he began rattling them off. 
out of order and incompletely. Can't kill, can't steal, can't lie. Honor your mama and daddy. I can still hear his voice in my head, and I'm not making this up. Often when I'm reciting the commandments in my mind, I hear him saying those words. I think, though, he was proving the speaker's point. We remember some of the commandments better than others because, well, perhaps we take some more seriously than others. Murder and theft and adultery seem like pretty serious violations of God's law. What about the 10th commandment? 25 weeks ago, would you have remembered to list not coveting as one of the commandments? Be honest with yourself. Back in April 2014, there was a ferry carrying some 476 passengers and crew members off the coast of South Korea. The ferry was headed toward a resort island. Over half of its passengers were high school students on a school trip. A little over an hour into the trip, during a slight change of course, the boat began to tilt into the water, slowly capsizing and sinking the vessel. A distress call was sent out. Within 30 minutes, the first rescue boat had arrived. Unfortunately, it was too late. 304 people, including 250 high school students, lost their lives that day on that ferry. A subsequent investigation into this horrible tragedy revealed its cause. The ferry had been loaded with twice the legal limit of cargo on its decks which had not even been properly secured. This excessive cargo had shifted when the ferry changed course, resulting in the boats capsizing and leading to the massive loss of life. The investigation also revealed that the excessive amount of cargo was on the ferry was not by mistake. It was very intentional. In fact, in the year preceding the tragedy, the ferry had been loaded with excessive cargo 139 times which had produced $2.9 million in extra profits for the company which owned and operated the ferry. For an extra $62,000 in profit, 304 people lost their lives that day. But theirs were not the only lives destroyed. The captain of the ferry was convicted of murder for his role in the tragedy and is now serving a life sentence in prison. Fourteen other crew members are serving out sentences of around 10 years in prison for other crimes associated with the sinking of that boat. And the owner of the ferry, who had a warrant out for his arrest for crimes associated with the tragedy, was found dead in a field some months later. The Puritan Thomas Watson says this of covetousness. As a ferryman takes in so many passengers as to increase his fare that he sinks his boat, so a covetous man takes in so much gold to increase his estate that he drowns himself in perdition. Coveting is a very dangerous sin. As one theologian wrote, covetousness will sink us down to hell as fast as any other sin. Therefore, we mustn't forget the 10th commandment, nor should we neglect it. But one of the really challenging things about the 10th commandment is it is like 
unlike any other of the commandments in that what is explicitly forbidden isn't an outward action. To covet is to crave, to yearn for, to hanker after something. It's to set our hearts on anything that is not rightfully ours. And since coveting has to do with wanting, it is a sin of desire. So as one biblical scholar puts it, coveting is a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to another. Thomas Watson also said of coveting, it is an insatiable desire of getting the world. Coveting is about being consumed with wanting worldly things. The 10th commandment then goes straight to the heart where our desires lie. So while the first nine commandments explicitly condemn outward actions, the 10th commandment governs internal desires, revealing to us that God does not merely require an external obedience, but judges the heart. Therefore, with the 10th commandment, we have unmistakably moved, as J.I. Packer says, from actions to attitudes, from motions to motives, from forbidden deeds to forbidden desires. And while the 10th commandment isn't as concerned with what we do as what we want to do, one of the issues with our desires is that they shape and drive our actions. In James' epistle, he asks these probing questions. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And he continues, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There are plenty of biblical examples to back up what James says here. There's a story of Ahab, Naboth, that I told the children this morning. We also have the famous story of David, who, while he was on his rooftop one evening, spotted the beautiful Bathsheba bathing, and he began to desire her. And his desire became adultery, which became deceit, which became murder. But really, it all goes back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. Why was it that Eve ate the fruit to begin with? It was because of her desire to be like God. So James, in the first chapter of his epistle, has given us a right diagnosis of our sin sickness that resides in the depths of our hearts. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire." Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It is not a sin to be tempted. Temptation is but an offer to sin, usually an external offer for some sort of worldly pleasure. We're told in Hebrews 4 that Jesus himself was tempted. The issue is not temptation, but our response to temptation. Do we resist it? Do we flee from it or do we begin to entertain it in the depths of our hearts? Do we allow it to begin to dominate our thinking, being consumed with how much we want the object of temptation and reciting to ourselves why we need that object? 
And this is where it becomes sin as a seed of desire in our hearts. We begin to want what we were tempted by. We convince ourselves that we have to have it, that we deserve it. And then we begin to make plans to get what we want. So the seed grows and eventually works its way out through our external actions. Our outward sins then begin in our hearts as sinful desires. As Jesus said, the words of our call to confession, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And here is the hang-up. While it is often very easy to recognize our outward sins, you will know it if you commit murder or adultery or if you steal something. But it isn't so easy to identify our sinful desires. Is it fair to say that we aren't as aware of the ways in which our desires are influencing us or even know oftentimes what our desires are exactly? It isn't as simple as asking, did I or did I not do this or that? Rather, it requires us to examine the state of our hearts, to discern our desires, to recognize and understand our wants. I might really be mistaken, but my guess is that most of us do not spend nearly as much time reflecting on our desires as we do our deeds. You might, for instance, lie in bed at night regretting the lie you told that day or the ugly way that you treated your child, but we probably aren't lying in bed awake at night asking God to forgive us for what was at the root of those things or asking God to forgive us for needlessly wanting our buddy's new four-wheel drive truck or that pair of shoes we saw on that person we admire. In fact, we might even be lying in bed at night thinking about our friend's new vehicle and plotting how we might get one of our own. But then again, maybe I'm just alone in this respect. I would like to suggest this morning that the sin of covetousness could be a huge blind spot for us as we live out our lives before the Lord. It was for the rich young ruler, right? He comes asking what he must do to have eternal life, and Jesus responds by saying that he must obey the commandments. Which ones, he asks. Jesus states, you shall not murder the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. You shall not steal, the eighth commandment. You shall not bear false witness, the ninth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, the fifth commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, the summary of the second half of the law. And the man states, all these I have kept. Is there anything else? In other words, piece of cake. Is that it? He declares himself to be righteous according to the law. But dearly beloved, what commandment has Jesus not mentioned from the second half of the Ten Commandments? 
Do you see what Jesus has done here? He knows the man's weakness. He knows that it is a huge moral blind spot in this man's life. Jesus had led him to this question in order that he can now confront him with the heart of the matter. And notice that he doesn't simply state the 10th commandment, does he? Instead, Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Jesus addresses what the man's treasures are for in the words of Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus goes right to the man's deepest desires and the gospel accounts tell us that confronted with this reality, the man went away full of sorrow. The rich young ruler was covetous and his covetousness was idolatrous. This is why the apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, that covetousness is idolatry. When our wants for more of the world supersede our love for God, then we are committing idolatry. For the rich young ruler, his desire for material wealth and possessions had replaced God as the object of his affections and therefore as the object of his worship and service. And if we look at the Ten Commandments, the structure of the Ten Commandments with this in mind, we discover the wisdom of how they are arranged. We have said throughout the course of this sermon series, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, runs over all of the commandments. All of the commandments go back to this one and are about this one. Will you craft for yourself a God who you will serve, who will cater to your felt needs? Will you make vengeance your God? Will you make lust your God? Will you make greed your God? What or whom will you serve in worship? All of the commandments come back to putting the one true God as first in our lives in submitting ourselves to him. They all come back to whether or not we will worship and serve Yahweh alone, whether or not we will offer our unreserved allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the 10th commandment runs under all of the commandments. It forces us to evaluate our desires at every point. Did we simply give lip service to our parents while we had disdain for them in our hearts? Did we wish harm would come to that person who was ugly to us? Did we fantasize about having an adulterous affair? Did we think about stealing that shiny thing that we couldn't afford? Did we delight in the thought that the rumor about that person we despise might ruin the reputation? It forces us to think about whether our desires are in line with God's desires or whether they are seeking to displace God as king of our lives. Therefore, the first commandment and the 10th commandment serve in a way as bookends for the 10 commandments as a whole. We begin with a belief in obedience to one God who has total claim over our lives, and we end with a word about the state of our hearts, which looks back over the previous commandments, infusing into each commandment an understanding that it is not merely external obedience that is required of us. And when we understand the structure of the Ten Commandments, we also understand the seriousness 
of the sin of covetousness. It is not only our actions that are breaking our relationship with God and leading us far from him, but it is first and foremost our desires from which our other sins emanate. And the question becomes, how am I going to keep control of my desires? How am I going to keep myself from wanting what isn't mine? It is one thing to stop myself from externally violating the commandments. It is quite another to keep myself from selfish and sinful desires. This is the reason why the disciples react with such concern to Jesus' response to the rich young ruler. Do you remember it? The gospel accounts tell us when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus reassures them, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Salvation, in other words, is not possible on our own, but only by God's grace in Jesus Christ. If we had any illusion, as a rich young ruler did, or as the apostle Paul did, that we could be righteous before God by perfectly keeping the law, the 10th commandment shatters it. Paul, who had thought of himself as blameless, says in Romans 7, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, Paul isn't saying here that the law made him sin, made him covet. He is saying that the law opened his eyes to his sin, but had no power to keep him from continuing to sin. And it's no coincidence that Paul specifically refers to the 10th commandment here. If you have not recognized that you are dead in your sin, then spend some time, some serious time meditating on the 10th commandment and its implications on what God requires of you. But I want to be very clear here. While Jesus Christ was tempted, he lived in perfect obedience to the law. He did not violate the 10th commandment. He did not have impure desires. He did not sinfully desire that which the Father had not given him. He resisted the temptation from Satan to have things improperly. And he did that for you and for me. He did that to undo Adam's sin. He did that in order that his life could be offered up as a spotless lamb, offered as a sacrifice, as an atonement for our sins. He suffered and died. He took the punishment of your sin and mine on himself that you and I might be redeemed from the curse of the law. I hope if none of the other nine commandments has driven you to the foot of the cross that this one does. But I also want you to hear this and to believe this. Jesus died that we might be forgiven of our sin, but not just that. 
He died that you and I might be freed from our sin. And that includes the sin of covetousness. So before we resign ourselves that we can't really control the things we desire, before we turn and walk away sorrowfully as a rich young ruler did, I want to remind you that Jesus Christ died to set you free, to free you even in especially from your desires that are not of God. You have been delivered from the dominion of darkness if in fact you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior and you have been saved by God's grace. allow me to let you in on something if you didn't already know. Your old self continues to wage war against the spirit who lives in you and gives you new life. Your old self continues to try to shape your desires, to drag you back into the darkness, to sink your ship on the way to God's eternal shores. So let me exhort you today. Let me plead with you by the help of the Holy Spirit living in you. Fight. Fight with all your might against your sinful nature which has been crucified in Christ on the cross over which you reign victorious with him. So before I conclude this morning, I want to say a few words about how to fight this battle against sin, how to put it to death slowly but surely the sins of your old self, about how we can work to shape our desires to be in conformity to God's will. Remember, the Apostle Paul tells us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, which means that we can, with God's help, make progress in overcoming our sinful nature and submit ourselves to God's holy will. And let me say that shaping our desires is the task. It is not an elimination of desires as say the Buddhists seek. We were made to be dependent creatures And so we have desires that stem from our neediness. We need food and water and shelter and rest. We have need for relationship with other human beings. We have need for relationship with God. We actually have then God-given desires for these things. The problem is that sin has twisted those desires. So for instance, our desire to have intimacy, which gets fulfilled through the gift of marriage by God's good design, gets twisted by sin to simply be a desire for sex apart from committed relationship. Sin is never able to deliver on its promises, though, so we never stop craving. We just want more and more. And this is what we are trying to kill by the power of the Spirit. And that's where we begin with God. The Apostle Paul tells us, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We cannot stand against sin on our own. We will lose every single time. We must rely on God and the resources he's given us. And Paul goes on, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We need the armor of God. We need to remember that we must put our trust in God's word as truth over and against what the world is telling us. 
We need to remember that it is in Christ's righteousness that we stand and that we have peace with God through faith in the salvific work of Christ. We need to remember to rest our faith on Christ alone in his work for our salvation. But putting on the armor of God, practically speaking, means being very intentional about our habits on a daily basis. It means being very, very intentional about our habits on a daily basis. Let me explain this. The Puritan John Owen writes in his famous book, The Mortification of Sin, sin untunes and unframes the heart itself by entangling its affections. It diverts the heart from the spiritual frame that is required for vigorous communion with God. It lays hold of the affections, rendering its object beloved and desirable, so expelling the love of the Father. How is the heart tuned for good or for evil then, according to Owen? By way of habit. He states, every lust is a depraved habit or inclination pushing the heart towards evil. Clearly then, if you want to weaken the sin, you weaken or eliminate the habit of sin. So Owen says the first thing in the mortification is the weakening of the habit of sin or lust so that it shall not with that violence, eagerness, and frequency rise up and conceive, provoke, entice, and disquiet as it naturally has the tendency to do. So let me ask you, what are your habits? What do they reveal about the affections of your heart? How are they shaping your desires? And you must begin by asking yourself what it is exactly that you want. When Andrew and John approached Jesus at the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus asked them, what are you seeking? It is a piercing question. And we are asked the very same question. And we have to be prepared for the possibility that the answer to this question is not what we might expect of ourselves. What we love will shape what we do, and what we do will shape what we love. So we can say that we love the Lord with everything that we are, but our habits might reveal something very, very different as it did for the rich young ruler. He didn't, in the end, desire life in God's kingdom. And I would like to humbly suggest that we also often don't recognize the power of our habits and how they are shaped by and are shaping our affections. We are not ignorant to the fact that we live in a consumeristic culture. We're surrounded by a world whose gospel is never-ending consumption and where our worth is based on what we consume. This is one of the reasons why covetousness has become such an ignored sin. We've made it respectable. You should want what your neighbor has. It's how you keep up in this culture. Plus, this is how you contribute to the economy. And since our hearts are idle factories, it doesn't take much, if any, pushing to get us to desire more and more material possessions, and everything becomes a consumable item, including other people. 
but we might not even realize how we have developed worldly habits that are shaping us to have sinful, consumeristic desires. So we wake up, we immediately check social media, we see the things our friends have that we don't, and we start the day with our hearts desiring worldly things. And we go to work where we're told that we must work harder so that we can support the company and get the next promotion. And we do it because we want more money so we can buy more things that provide us with a sense of worth and security and comfort. And at the end of the day, we come home exhausted after a nine or 10 hour day and we plop down and we turn on the television. And we see the newest toys and clothes that will promise to bring us happiness and give us the image that we want, and we go to sleep desiring worldly things. And on the weekends, we spend time shopping, buying the things that we have wanted and hadn't already bought over the internet earlier in the week, and with our friends who share our same values, telling us about the cool gadget that they just bought. Of course, sometimes we just have to get away because we work so hard creating a constant exhaustion. So we have to take more and more vacations because we need rest and deserve to be pampered from all of our hard work. Dearly beloved, if this is the rhythm of your life, if these are your habits, then you are in a soul-crushing cycle that is wrecking your love for the Lord in your faithful obedience to him. And this is where we need to hear Owen's wisdom. But let me encourage you, you don't simply weaken habits that lead you to sin. Where possible, eliminate them and replace them with holy habits. And this is what that might look like. Replace checking social media in the morning and watching television in the evening with prayer and scripture reading. Replace weekly trips to your favorite store, whether it is Target or TPs, with time spent at a weekly Bible study. Diligently seek to slow down the daily grind that is causing your exhaustion because busyness is very, very unhealthy for your soul. Regardless, commit yourself to finding your rest through weekly observance of the Sabbath, including worship, which has a rhythm in it that shapes our affections for the Lord. And then replace the excessive number of vacations you were taking throughout your year with service through mission opportunities. Stop regularly reading worldly magazines that add to your sinful craving. Replace it with a Christian resource like Table Talk. Stop regularly spending time with friends who encourage you directly or indirectly to bad habits and make a habit out of fellowshipping with the saints in the local church through small group or Bible studies or neighborhood flocks. This is a rhythm of life that supports and encourages growth in maturity in the Lord, that grows our love and affections for the Lord, that equips us with spiritual armor against the attacks of Satan, and that keeps sinful desires at bay. And when temptation does come, It is much easier to resist because we are daily delighting ourselves in the Lord and reminding ourselves of the superior pleasures we have in Christ Jesus. So let me now conclude with a simple word. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, be killing your sin or it will be killing you. Don't let covetousness sink your ship. Check your habits. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your moral law which reveals our sin to us, the depravity of our souls. And Lord, I pray that we would turn and run, that we would flee from all of our sinful desires, Lord, and that we would run to you to find grace and help in our time of need. Strengthen us, to resist the temptations of this world by the power of your Holy Spirit and fit us for your everlasting kingdom. For we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived in perfect obedience because we cannot and suffered and died that we might be offered forgiveness and new life in you. We pray it in his name. Amen. And in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? I believe in God.